Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, welcome back to your, well, I shouldn't say welcome back. I should say welcome home to you and Happy New Year. You were in I like that. four home. countries. Oh, my God. Five, six countries over the holiday. You were in Canada, Fiji, New Zealand, Australia, Singapore. And now back to the UK. I, totally, I gorged on travel. That's what I did over, I love over the holiday break. Yeah. I was yeah happy one, New Year, man. Thanks. I was in one country, although I was in Indianapolis for a family funeral, which was the middle of the country is different, dude. I mean, it's, it, is, it is a different... Uh, you just learn a lot about, you know, you know and the it, United it, States. But it's, it, I, it, you it, don't it, learn as much as you learn in, like, New Zealand. And it's somehow become vogue for people who have... Well, I didn't grow up on the coast of Canada. I grew up in the middle, too. But it's become vogue, right, to go to the middle. Uh, I don't really think I've spent much time in middle America. Yeah, it's a different it. scene. It's a different scene. It definitely mm. has a different kind of... It, but great people. I mean, my I met some amazing... Like my aunt lost, my aunt Vicky lost her uncle Chuck, who I was close to, and I did the funeral. But they're, they used to talk about how good their neighbors were. And I, I, I felt like, I, I told my wife, I was like, our neighborhood looks so shitty compared to this. Like these people are so great. <laughs> they like, take they, care of their Yeah, places. I'm like, God. And they, and they just took care of her and just all the food and host pots. I'm like, gosh, these people are nice, nice, just nicer people. Okay, okay. So we know where to go on the road with our roadshow. Exactly. Indianapolis. We, uh, we will come there. We'd love it. Sweet. Sweet. That, well, throw that on the wall for like, you know, 2019 objectives or ambitions. Absolutely. A mid- gotta, Midwest tour. Totally. Totally. That'd be awesome. So yeah. the, you actually have a vote. Like, so which government right now, you're a poli-sci guy, which government is less functional right now? The United <laughs> States government where we have the Speaker of the House disinviting the president for the state and then he whacks her by saying, Oh, yeah, Nancy. Well, that uh, CODEL, the congressional delegation, you're going to have to fly commercial. 30 minutes before they're about to get on the military planes, uh, he you cancels know, the trip. So, so that's a great question. Which government is more dysfunctional? And, you know, I, let, let's just say, you know, a strong case can be made for both. But I Because Theresa May is yeah. an interesting place, right? Because she lost her Brexit deal and then now is... One, a vote of no confidence, I guess because a lot of people are scared of Jeremy Corbyn. That would be interesting. If Jeremy Corbyn was not head of the Labor Party, how like how different this would play out? Like, I, I mean, the, the Brexit thing in the UK is, is just kind of weird when you kind of, you know, Parliament takes votes. Because on the one hand, you've got people sort of on both sides of the aisle who hated Theresa May's Brexit deal, but for opposite reasons. Right, some people because they hate the idea of Brexit, and some people because this deal doesn't deliver a hard enough and complete enough, you know, a clean enough Brexit that we thought that we voted for. So you had people on both sides of the issue hating and voting against her deal for opposite reasons, which is why it failed by such a giant margin. But then when the question became, well, do you want a change of government? Then suddenly everybody reshuffled back to party lines and said, well, no. I mean, we. We're in government because we're the majority, and they stayed loyal to their party, and so she she maintained her hold on government. And who would want to be but, prime minister until this is done? Well, because like this thing is going to kill like several governments until it's all sorted out. Because 
it's one of those things where there's no pop. It's a third rail kind of thing, right? You can't you can't touch it. Like, I and and I guess yeah, and I guess it's a, just stepping back for a moment. I guess it's inevitable if we're gonna you know record this in the middle of January 2019 that we're we're almost we're almost doomed to just sort of having a like a sort of politics gossip shop because of what's going on uh, on both sides of the Atlantic right now. But if I can go back to your original question, which is you know which side is more dysfunctional, my my immediate thought is. You know, maybe I would say the UK, because for all that is going sort of wrong with American democracy right now, I think there's probably still some sense, and maybe this is weakening, but I think there's still probably some sense in the US that that eventually this whole abnormal period is going to end, and then we can kind of get back on track. Yeah, yeah. Whereas right now in the UK, I mean... If if Brexit goes through, that's going to be at least with this country for a generation, right? There's going to be at least like let's say a 25 year period where the UK is still in the midst of uh, divorcing itself and like kind of the post divorce ugliness of disentangling all its institutions from the European Union, which you know and kind of depends how you want to look at the world but most social scientists look at things like economics and 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 demographics and stuff like that and say that this is pretty clearly going to be a bad deal for the british people in terms of quality of life as we ordinarily measure it so the dysfunction in the uk right now could you know very possibly be sending sort of well-being and welfare in this country in the wrong direction for the next 25 years. And I don't know if in the United States people are quite that gloomy about how long uh, this dysfunction could could play out in terms of its consequences. I I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I do think that, I mean, there's a a heightened partisanship and tribalism that's just, that is going to be around for a while, I think. But even with that, like, still seems like after the Trump presidency that there'll probably be garden variety dysfunction instead of but stuff that will still because of norms and and rigorous democratic institutions that that, that the ship is writable I think uh, there's some challenges but I think that yeah I think that Trump and who knows I mean it's interesting because after the Nixon imperial presidency, there was a lot of government reform in the 70s, right? And, and even you look at Jimmy Carter, mm. like after Gerald Ford, there was this kind of like, hey, let's get a Southern Baptist peanut farmer, you know, like somebody that's like a decent guy. Like, <laughs> so I wonder like if the Trump kind of presidency is going to, if the country will look for something more virtuous, transparent. That, that, I mean, there's, I feel like there's signs of hope despite the being a sort of global embarrassment right now. Yeah, and, I mean, and I don't want to... Um, although, you know, maybe it's inevitable. Like I, I, I don't want to just dump into sort of a, a simple fallacy that, you know, Democrats good and Republicans bad. I mean, there's a lot of arguments to make there, but I, I also still do really appreciate, you know, I think we've talked about this before and, and as Bill Clinton said, or maybe you told me that Bill Clinton said that, you know, uh, Republicans are there to, you know, uh, draw the lines that should not be crossed and Democrats are there to remove the lines that should never have been drawn. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And and I love that formulation that, you know, it's it's kind of like, um, you know, in a court of law that you've got sort of two opponents arguing different sides of the issue. And 
And that argument does sort of bring out some, you know, deeper understandings of things. So where, where was I going with this? Just to say that, so setting that aside, you know, if I look forward four years, eight years, 12 years to the United States, it's hard not to see some kind of pendulum swing back in a different direction, right? Uh, you know, say, for example, a, a Democratic president after Trump, whether it's in two years' time or in six years' time. And, and if for no other reason, then, you know, Trump is sucking so much oxygen out of the Republican Party that, you know, if he finishes two terms, I doubt there's going to be like any Republican who can sort of take that mantle because he's so larger than life in his party. He's, he's so dominant in its discourse that there's, there's just, I don't think, going to be a ready next generation of a charismatic alternative versus for the Democrats being out of office. They've got like maybe 20 people are going to be running for president. There's going to be so much energy and excitement and possibility about a new face. It's hard not to see that there's going to be some kind of almost like automatic stabilizer in, in U.S. politics after this presidency, wherever it, wherever it ends, versus on this side of the Atlantic, there's no automatic stabilizer but Brexit. It's, it's very much a kind of a one-way door. And if this country chooses to, well, they've already chosen to walk through it, if they actually do go through with it, um, you know, people who want to go the other way are going to find that, no, the, the door actually only went one way, and now we're stuck on the outside. That's, it, I think, very different in terms of what the trajectory over the next... 10, 20 years is going to be. It's interesting because I've heard that some people in England want to do like another referendum. Like, let's do it. And then, a lot of people do, yeah. It's sort of like, well, then does that, like, and then the argument gets is, does that delegitimize the democratic thing? And what do we do? Best of seven? Do we keep getting it? it, it, it you know, like how many, like, <laughs> but, 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 you know, this yeah, is no, one man. of those things where like, this is a complex issue that probably should never been on a referendum, right? Like, right. so, yeah. So, and, and this is why, you know, in the final analysis, what I say about what's going on here in the UK is uh, I, I think that it's just a total, um, what's the fancy word I'm looking for? Like abdication of leadership yeah. by the political leaders because it is so messy. I mean, you could argue that no, 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 have to respect the results of a referendum. Otherwise, what was it for? Yeah. Or you could argue, well, that was so many years ago and the electorate has changed. And what is the period of validity for a referendum when it's binding upon a government? It's not clear, but surely by now it's no longer binding. You can argue it however you want. What needs to happen is you know, for political leadership to stand up and say, this is the direction that I'm going. Who wants to follow me? And, and really, you know, May likes to think she's saying that. I'm, I'm, I'm respecting the results of the referendum, but she's not really. She's she's more, hey, I can't lead. All I can do is execute the instructions. And on the other side of the aisle, Jeremy Corbyn, who himself is probably a Eurosceptic. Well, he is a Eurosceptic. So, so there is an opportunity. There's a, there's a space for, uh, you know, one of the party, political party leaders to just stand up and say, I'm not saying that this is right, absolutely, but I'm leading a march to say we're going back in or we're never going to leave and, and invite the criticism invite the critique from people who say that no that's disrespecting the result of the referendum but at least you are then representing a the other possible future to the voters so that there's some kind of mobilization within the formal political system of you know are we in or are we out 
instead, because sort of neither of them is, no one's really clearly picking that up. You just have the commentariat, you know, recycling endlessly these questions about what did the referendum mean? And, you know, was there foreign interference in the process? And, uh, you know, uh, what are the terms of the exit? Do they need to look like in order to, like, it, it, it is, you almost want to tear your hair out. Is it better to do nothing than to do the wrong thing? Like, that's the question. Because it's interesting. I interviewed this guy on my interview podcast, Give and Take, Edward Watts. Great guy. Wrote this book called Mortal Republic about, he's an ancient historian, a young guy. What's the name of the book? Mortal Republic. Mortal Republic. It's fantastic. Uh, And it's basically the decline of sort of the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic into an empire, autocratic sort of system. And he looks at like the the third century and sort of the golden age of the Republic, or at least when the Republic was pretty functional. Mm. And he says that that is exactly what the system was designed to do. Like it was, it was designed so that it's better to do nothing than the wrong thing. Uh, and, and there were checks and balances. And, and, you know, we're talking about how what happens when things slide into autocracy is that it's mm. almost like things that were features of the system are looked at as bugs. So, Okay, you know, the, the system is to, and, and, and how things that like certain practices could have been abused, but they just weren't because of norms and traditions. We just don't do it that way until somebody says, why not do it that way? And so eventually the, the, there was, you know, populist things that rose up in Rome and, 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 and that eventually people are just like, well, just do something because people feel like they've got less investment in the system and 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 then you slide into autocracy. And so that's so it's interesting because it's these kind of moments where. You wonder, and it's different in the in the UK because I think the American Republic works. I think has more things that, like it, it's meant to have all these checks and balances. So it, it, it's it, it is meant to be not easy to do big things without a lot of consensus. But you, you know, you see like people that that it, it requires a certain set of virtues, civic virtues, civic values, and stuff. To make a system like that work, right? Mm. It's like it when Mitch be... Mc... it's like when Mitch McConnell denies Obama picking uh, his last Supreme Court justice. There was nothing unconstitutional about that. It just is a question of norms. Like, like, do you want to do you want to do you want to be on the other side of this when this happens? You know, like, mm. and and mm. you know, Mitch McConnell points back to, and you could say right or wrong. Harry Reid didn't do it for the Supreme Court, but was frustrated with Republican filibustering, so just changed the rules so that you only need a simple majority for. Judges, because because right, right. he wanted, you know, the Democrats wanted more court picks. So you once things that are just not done happen, you know, then then his argument is that things kind of can quickly go into decline. And these are the kind of moments, right, on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, you know, two countries separated by a common language, you know, that that these like sort of frustrating moments are things that sort of undo democracy sometimes so it's interesting you know we'll have to send out a general call to our listeners if 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 someone is an expert on this or can point us to someone or or a book that is now i'm really interested to really get into you know right now and the kind of brexit stuff and the you know government shutdown stuff as sort of a case study in highlighting some of the differences between parliamentary democracy and I guess, presidential democracy in the United States. Because, you know, one of the things about a parliamentary democracy and, you know, the Canadian system is the same, so we learn this in our civics. You know, when in the parliamentary system, Theresa May, you know, Justin Trudeau, when you win a majority, you basically are, uh, you know, almost like an authoritarian regime. 
Like you, you, you write the law and you pass it and you just, you, you run your, you just turn your platform into legislation. Uh, you don't have some kind of adversarial process to appoint Supreme Court justices. You just choose who you want to put onto the Supreme Court when a vacancy becomes available. And it seems, and this is where I sort of get curious about how does this really function in practice, but it seems that therefore norms do play a kind of self um what I don't want to put it, but like that that just the norms of the system do weigh very heavily upon the the government leadership in these situations. Um because absent those norms, then what is there to distinguish this from an autocracy? But Whereas it seems in the US system, like well, you know, if, though, right? if you don't want me to do it, just yeah, go on. But no, in a parliamentary uh, uh, system though, <laughs> you you do have a uh, like a it's easier to get rid of a prime minister that is really like going too far or, be, or doing things that are, are clearly massively yeah, unpopular. Right. It's and it's that's easier right. to call for elections, right? Like, I mean, it's easier to right. so so like it, it, it. I mean, yeah, I think that like in a parliamentary yeah, system, right. you have to sort of you get more power, but also if you go extreme with it, you could quickly upright the apple cart. And whereas in the United States, it's sort of built into the system that you, you, that minorities have rights and powers and and in the end right, the fact right. that we have a president a president who's the head of state and head of government that's not a part of the legislative branch so that the legislative branch could go one or like we have in the united states right now the house mm. and senate are different parties and the, and then the president is kind of party onto his own like right i mean because mm. trump's not very ideological so those kind of systems are are, are intriguing because they th- there's all these built-in checks and balances just by the nature of the institutions Right. Well, so you're right. So I think I think somehow in the parliamentary system, so like Theresa May goes too far, and then you get you know the Skunk Works Committee within the Conservative Caucus itself that says you know if we can get 45 or 50 members to agree, then we can start a, a process to um, yeah we can we can we can push for a vote in confidence in party leadership and remove the party leader and, and therefore the prime minister. So there's a kind of there's a kind of check on your power from within your caucus whereas in the u.s system which seems so interesting right now is it's it's kind of like well um the checks on my power become apparent through the adversarial process so so you want to stop me okay stop me you can't stop me okay well then i guess it's within my power which was kind of you know how how trump was operating in the first two years of his administration and and obviously the the shift that he wasn't has not yet been able to sort of navigate now that there is a genuine check on his power. It's like, oh, 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 you can stop me. Well, no, I don't want you to stop me. And then it kind of grinds into this. And it's interesting, this too, because some of the things that I think what some people would hope that the Republic, some people in the Republican Party would check some of Trump's excesses because they're different co-equal branches. But then there's this kind of like fear, like, well, Trump's pretty popular. What if we lose the base? So, so these it's interesting because some of the way the government should have functioned, even with one party, didn't didn't work because people in his party, even though they were in a co- different co-equal branch, just decided we'll kind of work like employees of the president instead of mm. uh, co-equal members of of a branch of government that's meant to. So that's the challenge. Like when people right, just right. sort of like, all right, we'll 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 just work as top-down employees of the president, and then now you're saying the government looks totally different. Right, because the Democrats have taken the House and investigations or all these like things that, that you know, 
Republicans just sort of did a wink and a nod when Trump was there. Well, okay, like the Intelligence Committee, all this stuff. Like that's right. I mean, some of the stuff, some of the scandals, like the the emolument stuff, like I mean, profiting while you're in office. And all this stuff. They, they, I mean, they just got by oh, with they, so they, little they, oversight. No, 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 no. That's just good business. Exactly. exactly. I mean, I'm the president. <laughs> I can be the, run the greatest company and the country. It's There's no conflict. So I guess, I mean, all that you're talking about there sort of goes back to, you know, sort of from from the founding fathers and their, their resistance to party politics because it creates this question, are, is your loyalty to the party or to the people, to the office? to the oath, to the Constitution. And I think that the the critique that is most often lobbed at the right from the left in the U.S. today is that these people are putting party before before country. And, and that's where it starts to break down because in addition to your party identity, you have a, a constitutional identity. And within that identity, you have certain responsibilities that you're just sort of conveniently ignoring right now because it's not good for your party's political future. I mean, and 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 Mitch McConnell, you know, I, I, Exhibit A. <laughs> There's a guy that seems to have no values other than keeping the majority. Like he likes running the Senate, right? Like you can't. Like I, you look at him and he does. I mean, he points conservative judges up, but you're not. You, you don't. I I look at that guy. It's like such a creature of Washington. Like I like my Senate. I like preserving my majority. I'm good at it. And that's what I like doing. Like it, it's an int- he's an intriguing guy because he doesn't. I'm not saying he doesn't have values or, or he doesn't, but he doesn't come across that way. Well, to me, so he's Exhibit A of putting party first because and and the shutdown is such a clear example of this. I mean, he says, "Well, I'm waiting. I'm not going to put anything on the floor that the president's not going to sign." Oh, wait a minute. That's that's not your constitutional power. Yeah, the Congress the could end the shutdown. If they, exactly. If they exactly. have a two-thirds majority, which wouldn't be that hard to cobble together, they could just override a veto and open the government. But that's the thing. They won't. And the other well, thing is... The, the, and he's what? From Kansas? Like, he's from deep... He's, Trump, he's from, from Kentucky. Kentucky. He's yeah. from Kentucky. Sorry. And so he doesn't want to be... He doesn't be the want to be the one who betrays MAGA nation. Yeah, yeah, because so, that's the fun, interesting yeah. thing. Like, Trump has and this... And he, he's up for re-election, too. So there's all of that going on. The, the other thing, too, about Trump that's fascinating, right, in any other in any other kind of political climate, right, that the, this would not be a big deal. Okay, border fencing for a laundry list of things Democrats want, or border walls will just... But the wall becomes so moralized because Trump moralized it and demagogued with it. And so we got to keep these... Mm-hmm. Mexico, they're the worst people. So... It beca- the wall became not just a functional thing, but it became a symbol. And so now the Democrats right. can't just cut a quick deal because the, dem- the de- because he's made it into a, a symbol, symbol, right? So this right. should not be actual uh, in, in any other normal presidency, right? Like mm-hmm. that, that even though you disagreed with the party in power, you'd figure compromises, you'd get some of the stuff you want. This pr- you could give the president stuff he wants, and you get a bargain. But but Trump makes it hard to bargain with because he right. moralizes everything. Like he, he kind of right. it's it, so everything becomes this big drop dead fight, which is, is another thing is probably right. it, 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 it sort of kills the art of right. compromise. Right. There's no compromise when the game is capture the flag. Yeah. Like there's, yeah. One, there's one flag. I get the wall. Then I've got the flag. You deny it to me. Then you get the flag. And, you know, that's. And if you vote the for the there wall, can, there it can seems, be only one winner. Yeah, if you vote for the wall, it seems <laughs> that you're voting for a view of immigrants a view of nationalism, a kind of thing. So it's not just border. Uh, nobody, nobody wants open borders, right? Now, there's lots of different arguments about what's the most efficient way to to 
regulate the border. Uh, but now it's right. into a thing that's different. It's like not only regulated borders, mm-hmm. but a kind of nationalistic border. Like the border is a symbol. So that's a great analysis because that clarifies for me what I, I mean. I, I read a lot of David Brooks and I listen to him on NPR every week when he sits down with um, um, Mark, Mark Shields. That's a very yeah, good yeah. point, David. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, so David Brooks keeps making this point of well, you know, it, you know they they just should, should compromise. The Democrats should compromise. He ran an election on on building a wall. He won the election, so therefore he should have you know get to build his wall. And 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 that's kind of been his argument for the, for the the entirety of this shutdown. But but you you clarify exactly why that's maybe an improper analysis because it is about the symbolic language that he himself has introduced into American political discourse right now and 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 about who 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 wins the the battle of symbols yeah and it's but, and, and that's like it's when politics we just kind of we talked about last night, when politics becomes religious i mean when it's not just and when it's not just pra- mm-hmm. pragmatic things and, and functions, it becomes this ideological religion and you can't back down, right? There's like, there's, there's sort of either we're black and white kind of thing. And it, it just makes, it, and again, I think Trump has, it's not that Trump created all of it. I mean, the, the, there was a culture before Trump that allowed Trump to capture the Republican nomination, but he's certainly thrown gasoline on that fire and take, and again, the things of norms, just, you know, this is this guy, Ed Watts, like, you know, the, the more Republican thing. He said a lot of stuff that happened. It's just people that they just wouldn't do this because, Rome really incentivized for in the third century BC said, you know, incentivized civic honor. So you got these civic honors when you were a good Roman. And so that's how you mm-hmm. can. And then people just say, well, why not? Why shouldn't we just do this? You know, is it's and so once people say, well, why not do this? Right. And Trump's mm-hmm. the ultimate. Why not do this? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. the guy has probably mm-hmm. never said, why not do this to any situation in his life? Uh, you know, so that it just it mm-hmm. just it, that sort of changes the nature of a political culture in a way that. Is, again, taking him out of the equation will help a lot, I think. But but still, once you let the genie out of the bottle, it takes some time to put it back in. Mm, right. Listening to that argument, I'm kind of my mind is going back to Alistair McIntyre and and after virtue and and kind of the you know when we live in this context where there isn't some kind of shared virtue framework that weighs and imposes upon our behavior. Then, then the whole sort of language of norms is what's a fancy word, but it's just it's 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 without power. It's 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 just it's just empty air. Yeah, because it, it's just like it's interesting, right? Because the analogy is like people with Bitcoin, right? Cryptocurrency is like I was like, well, Bitcoin. I mean, oh boy, I'm looking forward to this analogy. <laughs> how would we? How would we? give that value because it doesn't really have no how do we give our own currency how does the euro have any value how does the dollar have any value because we all decide it has value that's what we're saying so mm. it's it's the same thing mm. with currency like with political currency mm. the the, right. the the norms only have value when we buy into them as currency just like the dollar and then at some that's point great, yeah. you know you, you you could say people are saying you could we could do the same thing with blockchain bitcoin so it's a, it's the same thing like you are mm. some of the norms only have the value that a functional currency does Mm. That's great. You know, we're going to have to, in fact, I'm going to write that. And maybe <laughs> we are, I, I might have to write about that. The notion of devaluing currency and the varieties of currency that are being devalued or maybe revalued in society today and, and thinking about sort of cultural change in the moment as a 
sort of devaluation and revaluation of currencies is a really interesting concept, I think. So the other and interesting but, analogy I have, and I don't know if this is like related, so maybe we could tell you. So I, was, I was saying something at my Uncle Chuck's funeral that he and my Aunt Vicky modeled something really well for me. That I heard this guy, Lewis Smeads, who is a psychologist, and, a, and he was a theological kind of person too. He's died now, but he was a pretty regarded guy in the psychological field. He said, I've been married seven times to the same woman. And he said, any healthy marriage, basically, it's a series of mm. death and resurrections. You have one honeymoon mm. period, then with kids, then with grown kids, teenagers, then at, co- at college, empty nest, then retirement. And mm. so what happens, he thinks, when marriages break down is they can't die and be reborn. They get stuck in a certain transition. And, and, and then the people can't reinvent themselves. And my uncle Chuck and I mm. do this incredibly well. And I think the same thing that Watts says about republics, they're, they're adaptable, right? Like, but you, there, it's like a marriage. There has to be the sense of, okay, we're, we're working at it. It's a challenge, but we'll, we'll go in the death for the resurrection well, for the rebirth. And when republics die, like marriages, it's like when, well, okay, we can't go into the, 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 the crisis or the issue the problems we can't adapt and we need we got to get divorced we got to have a new relationship kinds of we got to swing or something i don't know what the <laughs> i don't know what the analogy is but but that's i think that's an interesting analogy along with currency it's 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 buy-in it, it, it's a covenantal buy-in you know mm. and 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 so and it's renewal yes right yes it is how so what is the mechanism of sort of death and renewal of 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 circularity of cyclicity and, and a kind of recognition that for anything to sustain um, in the very long term, then it needs to have that mechanism. Right? Absolutely. The law needs to Absolutely. Have that mechanism. Social institutions need to have that mechanism because we go through um, such profound change. I mean, just think of the, the history of Western democracy over the last 2,000 years. I mean, what democracy is today is a profoundly different thing than it was in you know, ancient Greece. There are still some sort of recognizable core elements of sort of the, the, the will of the people governing, but it's also completely unrecognizable because we are in so many ways unrecognizable. And it's really interesting. You know, this, this is an argument to, to explore a lot. And as I think about, you know, all the work that I've done uh, looking at authoritarian power in the world today and living in China and studying the Chinese political system, because certainly in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, sort of end of the Cold War, when you know, there was this sort of liberal democratic triumphalism about the world, that this is the only game in town, this is the only way to run, to run a country towards prosperity. Part of the argument was that you know, authoritarian systems like the Communist Party in China are brittle, right? It, they're, 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 they're ossified, they're fixed, they can't adapt to change. And so you know, we're going to go through, they're going to go through enormous economic change, and it's going to break the political system and 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 part of what and i think that you know the party itself is quite seized with that's a serious argument that may be true the history of our country china is that kind of every 80 years or so the dynasty would end and a new dynasty would come to power and so the cyclicity was through revolutionary change and that's fascinating we- it's a different yeah we can't fathom that kind of cyclicity that it would work that way that's that's fascinating but it's interesting that that idea is already starting to enter into the kind of the, you know, intelligentsia within the United States as it looks at what's going on today. Like, you know, you, you get these little hints, not like major op-eds, but kind of hints on the margins and thoughtful people about like, are we headed toward another civil war or something like that? Because it's, it, it, it's kind of becoming such that. 
people have a hard time understanding how the renewal will happen this time around. And yet, you know, maybe that in itself just reflects how how hard it is for us when we're seized by a present crisis to kind of step back and appreciate the the durability of society. I, I just this is pretty random and aside, but it seems suddenly relevant. So I've just been watching this pretty good Netflix documentary about Robert Kennedy. I thought you were going to say R. Kelly. <laughs> I liked R. Kelly. It's tough. It's tough. It's a tough. Uh, yeah, he's got a great voice. It just uh, I like. I liked uh, Gotham City when he had like the kids choir in the back. Gotham City. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Anyway. No more kids so choirs. Lost a lot of fame. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my God. But, you know, think back to sort of the time of Robert Kennedy, right? Like, uh, you know, his brother's assassinated. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated. He's assassinated. You know, the, 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 the Vietnam War. I mean, what I'm sure you had so many people in American society at that point. Well, you did. I, I watched the archival footage in the documentary. You know, you asked them, like, what's the state of the country? And they're just shaking their heads, right? Like, when. We live in a country where you cannot run for president without getting killed. Right? So for all, have you that- seen that show on Hulu with uh, with oh shoot, who's the actor? Now it's escaping me. Uh, but it's basically on a Stephen King novel, and it's called like November. What, what day did Kennedy die? November something, nineteen sixty three. Or so it's basically this guy. Uh, oh, it's uh, it's Franco. Uh, James Franco is the. Is the is the main actor, and he this guy who owns yeah, yeah. this diner has a time machine in the back of his diner, but he can only go back like every time he goes back, he's got to go like in a certain period of time, so he can't just keep fixing everything. He's got to start over every time he goes back. So he figures out that the one thing that would fix all the world's problems is saving Kennedy, because Kennedy would have saved MLK and Bobby and all stuff. So finally, Franco gets back and saves Kennedy, and it ruins the country. Like, we lose to the Russians. There's new... Like, <laughs> so, so then he goes back and, and fixes it so Kennedy gets killed. So that everything's like it was way worse with Kennedy living. Mm. So you and just never know. Like, so, well, so what we do know... I don't even know where we're going this, with this conversation. It was really interesting. I mean, what, what you do know is that within a democracy, because there is mechanisms for people to participate, when there is a moment of crisis you do get a lot of people standing up and kind of saying, okay, well, I want, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take part in this. Like you've got a lot of uh, leadership in uh, American society today. And I would say also in, in British society around this Brexit issue. Here, I think not in the political class necessarily, not in the political leadership, um, but within society, you've got, you know, uh, a, a a movement for it's called like the people's referendum it, and it's basically outside of the outside of the political parties but people who are organizing the campaign to say we want to have a second referendum for example um you know the, the original brexit referendum was largely of like a, a a movement driven by the political fringe and 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 a populist movement so so i suppose within the reactions that we're seeing today at like you know how many uh you know how many people are going to run for the Democratic nominee against Trump? Oh gosh, is, is, is does the Constitution mandate a limit? But like, and and why are they running? I think because they feel like oh, well, I, I I'm seized by the issues facing the country, and it feels important. I've got to set aside other goals, and I've got to do this, even if I wasn't thinking of doing it yet. The urgency is such that I have to do it now. 
No, that and and that I think is a logic that is inflaming a lot of people on both sides of of these issues. And so maybe the renewal is kind of built in there, right? So that's that's the optimistic argument. And then I guess this book, uh, the Mortal Republic, would argue that well, you know, sorry, optimists. Well, he would say but, that <laughs> it's, that the decline of the Roman Republic was not inevitable. He thinks it's a story. He's like it, it's a series of decisions. A wink and but a, it's survival is not inevitable. Either. Right, right. And it, it, it's, it's a wink and a nod here, a, a compromise, a sort of a, a sort of acceptance of this petty corruption this year that eventually undoes the thing. But this is, but, but like he's like it's a group decision. Like it's 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 everybody mm. agree. It's it's interesting too as you're talking. I was thinking about like one of the biggest stu- things of academic success predictors is family dinner. Does a family sit and eat together? And it's huh. huge. Like in America, anyway, they've done studies on this. And so I think about thing, families that have these social rituals that keep them connected, right, and keep healthy social fabric. And I wonder, like, so is, is part, like, I, I've been reading a lot of Hegel lately because some guys have been listening to, talking with, like, have got me, like, revisiting Hegel. And for Hegel... You're such a geek. I'm, it's geeky, man. It's geeky. <laughs> but for Hegel, the truth is, is not just, like, is in the process. Like, the process is part, is, is the end, an end in itself, the dialectical process, right? It's not just a means to an end. It is part of the end. And so mm. I think, like, mm. if, if, so I, th- I think about, like, something you said that I'm so, uh, I, I, I'm, I want to reaffirm your whole thing about social media. Let's let it burn. De- let's, let's let the thing burn to see where the holes yeah. are. Let the, it run amok. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think that's right, actually. And, and I think that if, if we're committed to, the the sort of democratic republican i mean democratic republic like a republic that you know has democratic practices if we're committed to that it's not just a means to an end but an end in itself then we should trust it's adaptable and and can and that that we can rise to these crises if we again if we eat our family dinners together if we sort of stay if we stay connected mm-hmm. through the 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 culture of of the thing that's not just a means to an end but an end in itself but it becomes a means mm-hmm. to an end mm-hmm. Mm. Then yeah. inevitably it'll be dispatched with the because it's just inefficient, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's such a roundabout way of getting to the end. Yeah, yeah. If I can see the end, let's just you know cut through the yeah, yeah. So and I think it's worth. I, I'm of the perspective that it's worth it being an end. You know, like so that that and that and that and again, this is Ed Watts's point. Republics are adaptable. It takes time, oftentimes. Especially when there are things like with technology that we've just, you've wrote this in the age of discovery. You know, I mean, there's just so many things that are so new in degree and kind, right? Like that, mm. it'll take a while to adapt, but, but it's adaptable. Like it's, I mean, human beings are really good at evolving and changing and, and, and we could, if we're not chronically anxious, you know, it's, it's the chronically anxious moments that lead to the autocracy and the sort of, it just get any means to the end, if, you know, but if we can sort of stick yeah, together. Yeah, it, and I guess, I mean, and, you know, important recognizing that sort of chronic anxiety, you know, maybe is a psychological state, but it's not just, it's not just a subjective thing. Right? No, no, so it's we live physiological. In a world with all of these yeah. Well, it's, and, and there are all of these objective sort of conditions of our lives that make it easier or harder to navigate anxious moments. Like, you know, you think about, the 800,000 sort of federal workers who don't have a paycheck and it's and it's it's an incredibly sort of anxiety inducing context to be in where I have a job but it doesn't pay anything and and so like what kind of choices are you grappling with at like 
every moment except when you somehow distract yourself from thinking about it. Like, do, do I have to quit my unpaying job to get another job? And and then all of the things that I lose because like this is sort of a short term versus a long term thing. And, and that's one thing because you could see how the paycheck comes back. But when you think about people who have where all the economic opportunities like migrating to the coasts here in urban areas and you have people and think about this when driverless cars are are really honed when the technology is great and they have driverless 18 wheelers think of how many people who make a very decent livelihood can raise a family like driving 18 wheeler driving big trucks that whole part of that job those jobs are gone and you don't know that i mean that's the thing is like the thing when when the the thing that produces the anxiety there's no end in sight. I, I, I talk about exactly that point in, in some of my keynotes. There's a great, uh, I'd have to look up his name. We'll throw it in the show notes. There's a great um, series of researches by a, a Harvard economist uh, on sort of the labor market with this. And he looks at sort of total label, labor market share uh, of jobs. And he's got this wonderful quadrant of kind of, you know, do they require sort of math skills, high, low, or do they require sort of social skills, high, low? And and in the middle, you've got truck drivers. And the thing about truck drivers is they're decent paying jobs. Yep. I mean, this sort of classic example of sort of the jobs that if you had it afforded you a middle-class lifestyle, you know, put the, the kids in school and provided healthcare for the family and, you know, your home and, and you had sort of the attainment of, you know, kind of the American dream with the big white fence and stuff like that. And, and those are the jobs that are being uh, hollowed out right now by, by automation. So what is the, what is the rung to uh, middle-class livelihood? In the future, it's, 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 it's a really difficult question. Eric Yang, man. Eric Yang is this guy running for president. He's an entrepreneur, Asian-American guy, running for the Democratic nominee. I mean, he is likely not going to What? I had never even heard of yeah, him. Yeah, he's not going to win. But look, Google him, and his interviews are amazing. But he's the only one talking about this stuff. He's the only one talking. He's talking about basic income. He's talking about all these interesting mm-hmm. ideas. Because he's thinking, like, not just the next election cycle. He's thinking the whole century and what inevitably is going to happen. And how do we... Uh, try to keep up with it try at least to to anticipate what we can i mean he's a brilliant guy just a brilliant guy and he i mean but this is the kind of thing that it doesn't because it's 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 not you can't point to boogeymen and get people all the concrete this is why the immigration thing is such a great political issue because you can get people emotional on all sides because there's a concrete picture that either elicits fear or compassion or Mm. something but mm-hmm. with these kinds of things about automation and innovation and stuff, it's hard to get emotionally, to get people like ideologically rallying around it. But it's th- some of the most important mm-hmm. issues. That and the climate. These are the biggest issues we're facing. Mm. Which is why. <laughs> so you need to tune Which into this why... podcast, people, because we're trying. No, 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 we're trying. Totally. No, we, we are. Well, I mean, these are, you know, we, we started to grapple with some of these issues at, uh, at Base Camp Toronto in, in, in November. And it's going to be, I mean, part of part of the like the intellectual work we're doing in bringing people you know like eric we'll have to get him to come to the base camp in san francisco or something uh together in a room is to say okay well, let's start to deal with this stuff but it, it's when i think about these issues the impact of automation uh climate change right some of the big systemic stressors on the current socioeconomic system i mean that's when <laughs> you know when 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 nancy pelosi disinvites trump from the state of the union and then, you know, his reply was to yank away her military jet so she can't go to Afghanistan. And like that, that's when my hand just falls in my head. 
Yeah, this and is this and ain't this like, ain't. Oh Ru- my god, this ain't I mean, Roosevelt you, and Churchill here. Okay, like, like, but, like, like no, well, exactly. Like, like there was literally these are taxpayer paid positions. These people who are like, okay, we got to have a meeting and figure out what petty thing we can do in retaliation for this, and and that's where the focus is when you sit in the control room. You know, the machinery of government with all the biggest levers of your society in your hands. And instead of working on these problems like automation, like climate change, like demographic transformation, like all of these things, this is what we're doing. <laughs> hey, let me just say, let me just say, here's a great lesson learned from this. Pro tip. If you elect a reality TV star as president, don't be surprised if the government looks like a reality show. Well, but hey, the ratings are awesome. I tell you, it's not boring. It's not boring. I, but it's, uh, yeah, sometimes I want a little more boring government these days. I remember, I remember like, you know, roll back to the Obama years. No drama, Obama. Would, oh, like you would have, like, remember when he like, he appeared on whatever that guy was like between two ferns. Yeah. 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 Ta-da. Like, and, and, and you get so much criticism for, oh, that's so unpresidential. Or like appearing on, like he would appear on like late night talk shows. Yeah. Yeah. Like occasionally, right? Like, oh, that is so unpresidential. You're denigrating None of those people on Fox <laughs> News say that anymore about Trump. No, 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 no. Um, and you know, I don't know, maybe I'm not saying that's good or a bad thing, but it's a big, big difference. I mean, and probably, you know, the next president of the United States is, is going to maintain at least some of that, um, transparency. Yeah. Like every democratic nominee is announcing on Colbert. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I mean, Beto is, you know, like live streaming his dental appointments and, and and stuff like that like it's just a very different uh, the whole expectation of sort of uh the behavior of high office in the united states i think is undergoing a, like a, a, a just a radical transformation through the trump presidency and 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 that is a that is i think a, a really important point of distinction from a lot of the rest of the democratic world i mean you see you know the trudeaus and the mays and and the Macron maybe more like you know being a little more social media savvy, but but not not legislating through through social media. Yeah, I mean Trump sort of fast forwarded us. Like I mean people were gradually adapting to it. I mean like Obama was looked at as incredibly savvy in his operation and stuff. Like, but Trump has like sort of put us in a time machine ahead. Like so, and again I think the 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 promise of that is well maybe we'll get some equilibrium. Like people say, okay, how much of this do we really want? Like we want some of this accessibility, but also we don't want the demystification of the office to make it think, well, anybody can do it then because <laughs> anybody can't do it. <laughs> well, so that's really interesting. Demystification, you know, and, and I think, I don't know, that'll be something to sort of, to see with the next president with the next administration, is there a conscious effort to reintroduce some mystery and and majesty into the office? Or will it be seen as that is now an anachronism? And also the death of, I mean, Tom Nichols, I've had him on Give and Take before, and I think he's going to come back on, but he's a kind of never-Trumper. He's written a lot, again, a lot of, he's writing a lot of stuff now, but he wrote this book called The Death of Expertise. And it kind of, I mean, I, I think hopefully that, that some of the pushback to some of the populism will be, oh, hey, experts aren't all bad. 
It's actually nice to have mm. people that know things once in a while. Like mm. you, you know, mm. like the funniest thing is Ben Carson, right? Says, I, I, I can't be health and human services director. I wouldn't want to do that because I never run a government agency. Well, you ran for fricking president. That's running all the issues. Then accepts, right. being, <laughs> then accepts being the housing uh, and urban development uh, director, like, and, which he has no experience in. At least he had medical experience. Yeah, it's just amazing. Well, it's amazing. I, I th- yeah. Yeah. The point, the point, like, I can't, I can't imagine I can run health and human services, but I think I can run the country. Exactly. I could run <laughs> all the agencies. Though. Uh, yeah. There really should be some kind of, like, it should be a pretty sober thing. And like, it, it's a massive act of ego, but it should also be, one should have a clear answer for oneself. If you're going to run for highest office and you're effectively saying, I think I'm the most qualified person in the country to run the country, you should have a pretty good thesis for why that could be true. And the long primary season, people are critical of this in the United States, and, and I've been critical of it, But because like, like in the UK, election cycles are so so much quicker, right? I mean, the, the, the election elections. Yeah. But part of the long primary process is the presidency is such a high, it's such a high-powered office, right, constitutionally. So in in the past, I think generally the right. long primaries in both parties weeded out people so that at least even if you didn't like George Bush or if you didn't like Bill Clinton or you didn't like Reagan or you didn't like Obama, at least they were generally presidential, like in sort right. of character and competency, you know, like right. it, some more than others. But the the, the, the pro, no Trump has obliterated that, like yeah. somebody that's well, you know, on character and competency, like so then then you're like, well, what? How did the system fail this badly? <laughs> right. I, you know, an interesting, so this is, I mean, not a profound point, but just goes back to our earlier discussion about sort of the, some of the similarities and differences between parliamentary and presidential democracies. And so in a parliamentary democracy, I mean, yes, the actual uh, election season is very short, but the primary season for party leadership, you could argue, is is decades long, or at least is years long. I mean, you cannot go from reality TV star to party leader because you need to win the party nomination process and to do that you have to have served in government i mean you've you've probably got to have served in gov- in cabinet if you were ever a government in the past i mean so the only people who become party leaders are political careerists because it takes you 10 with rare exception it takes you know, like macron is a big exception um and without going into the weeds you could argue there's something structurally about the french a democratic system where it's possible for outsiders to very quickly form alternative parties, but yeah, yeah, boring, yeah, 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 boring yeah, except for nerds like me. In but the, in the United but, States, it's almost the one thing that both parties can agree on is a mechanism to stop third parties. <laughs> like, well, right, I, I, but and 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 there is a kind of I think allure to the big ego that I could you know I can have my cake and eat it too. I can I can build you know a tech behemoth. And then when I'm bored of that, maybe in my 40s or 50s, I can I can run for the presidency and have yeah have my cake. Whereas in parliamentary system, you kind of have to make an early choice. You can you can be rich or you can be powerful, but it's kind of hard to do both unless you were born with the rich, because getting powerful is a career choice. Yeah, it's what do they say? Democrats want to fall in love, Republicans fall in line. Because there is a sense in which Republicans much more like in history, if you run and lose in the primary, it's almost a badge of honor where when you lose in De- and Democrats, you're kind of done. Right. Like, but but that's there's something about that. Part of the system, right. Mm. You do your time. And so there's an internal process of weeding out leadership. It's not, it's less romantic. Right. It's less it's it not less it's romantic, not a populist yeah. sort of it's not a popular polling kind of thing. You, you, yeah. you, it's, it's an internal system. 
and and you have kind of rare exceptions. You know, Macron is maybe a rare exception. Although, okay, pause. Just to say, one thing that's very, I don't know if our listeners even care about this, but one thing that was that enabled Macron to become president was, you know, there was uh, a candidate in one of the mainstream parties who, like, just before the election, this massive scandal came out and completely tanked his electability. And then so suddenly he became electable. And then you had Le Pen, right? I mean, who was kind of extreme. too. I mean, like, the options on the landscape were kind of... Yeah. And, and Trudeau, yes, like rapid ascendancy to leadership of the Liberal Party, but would not have been possible if his father hadn't yeah, yeah, been prime minister yeah, right? yeah. and hadn't been a, a, like a, a kind of you know, Trudeau mania prime minister. because he, he was a bachelor when he was in office and all these different things. You imagine so, dating when you're the prime minister. Oh, that kind of, yeah. Well, that's like what? Do love you, Actually? Was it Love Actually? Were they, yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> Did you watch it this holiday season? I didn't. I didn't. I confess I did. I think I think I think we watched it on one of the flights. I've started watching The Bachelor though, and I I, oh I feel God. like my soul dies a little each time I watch it, but it's I'm fascinated at how like it's just it completely reaffirms my belief in total depravity of the human is the human condition because I mean the, Okay, so it's just like so, so awful. There's a The Bachelor. I mean, you Americans, you you don't know what depravity is. That's uh, this might be true too. U- UK television, there's something, what's it called? It's like, uh, I-, I can't remember the name of it. Well, <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. But it's it's literally this reality game show where like a contestant comes out, could be a man or a woman, and then depending on their sexual orientation, there are four kind of candidates for them to choose from. Have you seen this one? And they're in no. these like transparent, these like translucent boxes. And what happens is, so round one, the boxes are lifted to the point where you see their pubic region. Oh my gosh. So you see like these naked men's penises if if the contestant is looking for a male partner or you see these women vaginas and then with the host you you kind of go around and you evaluate each of these genitalia and you decide who you want to eliminate based on that. And that's round 1. And then round 2 it raises it sort of to So like you neck could level. you could get to a terrible looking person who has scraped below the neck. Yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. I'm gonna watch so, this. But, I'm gonna watch this. And then uh, we'll put it in the show notes. I can't remember the name off the top, but but in the final round, then there's like you're down to two contestants and um or the, like two possible choices, and they're completely naked. And then there's like a kind of Q and A interview round with the one contestant who's making these selections. And for this final round, they also take all their clothes off. Okay, you're right. The Bachelor is ba- is is Puritan now. This is, this is Victorian. <laughs> like yeah, now this is not yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is much more intense. I guess what's interesting is that, like, and this is on, you know, sort of uh, cable television here in here in the UK. But like, it's hard. Like, you have to give it to people. Like that. That takes balls to say, "Here's a concept. Let's do this." But it's kind of like you know, to bring it full circle. You know, the abandonment of norms within our political systems is once you abandon the norm that well, we can't show like explicit nudity on TV. Yeah, we can't, but we can't treat people well, like, like, like they treat slaves in the Roman empire and just objectify yeah, them but, naked on TV. <laughs> that, that, until you exactly can, until you can. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, well, where's the bar? If you can do that, then I don't know. It's like, we'll, we'll see how they perform sexually. Like, I don't, I don't know. Anyway, there's this great part in C- in C.S. Lewis's *Mere Christianity* where he's talking about virtues and vice, and, t- and he's talking about lust. And he says, "You know, can you imagine?" He's talking about strip clubs. And he says, "Can you imagine how strange it would be, how disordered we think, if you'd be in a nightclub and as slowly a curtain would come up, and and it, slowly you'd see a turkey and 
and potatoes and, and you wouldn't want to eat it just stare at it and i'm thinking yeah we have entire networks like now <laughs> he's like making he's trying to make like a fanciful analogy about a disordered sexual like desire or something and it's like no now everywhere we have these whole things where people just want to watch food like it's amazing mm. so i think is we should probably for the, for the sake of our listeners years wrap this one up yeah we've given you we've I, gone from the virtue the health of our democracy to how bad is television which i'm intrigued i'm gonna watch the show i'm gonna find it and watch but, it but, you know, believe it or not, so in my mind, I guess, is pretty twisted. So for me, the common threads through all of this, um, you know, one of these key words is the word that you used, uh, is, is currency, right? So what are, the, what are the currencies in society that we are devaluing um, and revaluing? And I think that you can apply that question to, you know, what is happening on British cable television, Um as equally as you can apply it to what is happening in sort of U.S. presidential politics, and then, and then I think that the other sort of big, big question that we've sort of grappled with is sort of renewal versus collapse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and and how do we know whether you know whatever is imminent and somehow wise in the deep architecture of society is leading us on a path of renewal versus leading us to some kind of collapse. What does Hegel say? The Isle of Minerva only flies at dusk or something like basically he's saying history is always in hindsight. Like, like we, show off. you know, I, I forget the exact the Isle of Minerva. Exactly. Right. The I, don't, I don't know how to do a Hegel impression, but I don't either. It would be a long German <laughs> sentence with a verb, like three pages from the first Germans weird like that. <laughs> Well, my friend, Dude, it's good to talk. Welcome back. Yeah, welcome yeah. back, and we'll be getting on a more regular recording schedule to our listeners. So look, you know, look for uh, more episode, another episode next week. Take it easy, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.